Science is the best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Good afternoon, everyone. So for today's alcoholic beverage, it is Cigar City Highlight IPA from the uh, Cigar City Brewery in Tampa, Florida. It is an American-style IPA with a 7.50 ABV. It's available year-round, and it pours uh, kind of copper in color with notes of citrus and tropical fruit. And uh, it has a really upfront sort of bit bitterness with some uh, caramel and citrus tropical fruit hop notes in the finish. It's one of my favorites. It's a go-to IPA. It's great for the Florida heat. So uh, let's pop this baby open. Cheers. That is a tasty brew. And today, we'll be hearing from Duncan Forgan. He is a computational astrophysicist and astrobiologist and a postdoctoral fellow at the University of St. Andrews. His research centers on numerical simulations of star and planet formation in circumstellar disks and in giant molecular clouds. His astrobiology research involves habitability studies of exoplanets and exomoons in exotic planetary systems, as well as improving theoretical estimates to assist the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. SETI. Duncan, it's all yours. Okay, thanks very much for that introduction. So I've decided to talk this month about something that isn't very SETI related. I was thinking I was going to talk about some SETI stuff here. But I decided to kind of wheel things back to something that I've actually just finished working on. It's, a, it's a basically a series of papers I've been looking at the different attributes and properties of what you might refer to as Tatooine planets, which is a, a planet that's orbiting two stars at the same time. So we know that planet formation isn't limited to single star systems. We know that there are planetary systems where there are two stars and there are, in fact, planets orbiting each star. We call these S-type systems. So the putative discovery of a planet around Alpha Centauri B would be an example of an S-type binary planet where it's orbiting B only. A is orbiting at some distance away. What we're going to look at is the other circumstance where the two stars are, are quite close together and the planet actually orbits the center of mass. And so what you can see in the very first picture here is a kind of nice cute cartoon of the circumbinary planets that we know. This is actually a bit of an old figure. There's a few more that have been added recently, thanks to Kepler. But obviously, these being the first detections, these are the ones that we're really quite interested in looking at. And the orbits you see of the planets have been normalized so that the region inside the gray shaded area is the same size normalized for, for all the systems. And this gray shaded area, what it means is that if you try and place a planet inside this region and evolve it uh, gravitationally, then it's actually an unstable orbit and the whole thing will get ejected from the system. So if anything manages to stray inside this region, then bye-bye is the basic uh, bottom line to that. So what you can see is that, in fact, quite a lot of these first detections are kind of crowded all the way around this instability region. And that seems to be quite a common feature of the circumbinary planets that we know is that as close as you can get to this instability boundary, then you start to see these guys uh, orbiting. And they generally tend to orbit in the same plane as the binary as well. So what that means is that you have, in the early stages of the system, the two stars form in the center, 
and then you have a disk forming around uh, both stars, and it's that disk that has dust and gas and all the materials that will end up being built into planets. When we then think about what that means for things like the Hadwell zone for a system like this, then one of the important things we have to think about is what are the masses of the two stars in the centre? So we know that from uh, simple calculations using the, the main sequence of stars, so we know that when a star is burning hydrogen at its core, then it follows a set of reasonably simple relations in terms of how bright it is compared to its mass. So we know, roughly speaking, if we know the mass, then we know how bright it is, and therefore we know roughly where the Hadwell zone is going to end up. Now, if we have two stars in the system, then the ratio of those two masses is going to be important. If there's one star that's very massive compared to the other, then the Hadwell zone that you end up with is actually quite similar to the single star Hadwell zone. So effectively, the second star is too small to have an impact. However, if you have two stars of roughly the same mass, then that Hadwell zone shape begins to change quite a lot. And there's been quite a lot of work in the last few years trying to quantify exactly how the shape changes. And as you can imagine, as the two stars move around in their orbits, then the Hadwell zone itself also changes shape over the course of an orbit. So it changes from being a nice simple annulus around a single star to being a, a kind of weird squash stretched peanut annulus that ends up moving around with the two stars as well. And that makes it quite hard to then calculate whether they think a planet itself is habitable because you can imagine a circumstance where you have this kind of weird peanut shaped Hadwell zone and the planets move in and out of that zone because of the shape of the zone. And uh, there's been a lot of work in trying to figure out what circumstances make a planet habitable. And so if we can just scroll down to the next set of pictures, you'll see there'll be two plots here. On the left-hand side uh, was some work that I published earlier this year, where what we did was instead of just saying, right, what's the shape of the zone? We decided to start putting planets in around the, the binary system and then evolve a simple climate model. By looking at the results of the climate model, we can just say, okay, we place planets at each of these points. So you can see on the, the bottom axis there, we have the semi-major axis of the planet's orbit. And on the y-axis, we have the eccentricity or how elliptical the orbit is. And what you can see is that we can now start to build a picture saying, okay, we ran simulations at these points. The red points are planets that are too hot to be in the Hadwell zone. The blue points are planets that are too cold. The green ones are ones where the planet's temperature is in a nice range where we could have liquid water. And the filled circles, the, the white circles that you see here, are in fact planets that do satisfy the criterion for being habitable, but the temperature fluctuations are very strong, so it may not be the most pleasant place to live. So what you can see is that if we put in uh, the coordinates of Kepler-47c, which is a planet uh, in a circumbinary system that we believe to be in the habitable zone, it's a Neptune-mass planet, so it's probably not going to be a classic Earth-like habitable planet. It may have a moon around it that could be habitable. We can see that, okay, we know that the semi-major axis is close to 1. We know that the eccentricity has to be less than 0.4. So we put a downward arrow here saying anything from this point and below is potentially where Kepler-47c sits. And we can see from these simulations that, roughly speaking, if Kepler-47c was Earth-like or if it had a moon that was like the Earth, then it would be habitable. So this is a slightly different way of trying to describe where habitability exists inside uh, a circumbinary system. And it also helps us to characterize where, even if you're in the Hadwell zone, where it's actually quite stable and quite nice to live, as opposed to simply being, well, okay, you're within the temperature range, but 
on a given location on the, the planet's surface, the temperature could fluctuate by 50 degrees uh, on a regular basis. And you're obviously not going to enjoy that very much. And obviously, 50 degrees in centigrade or Kelvin, not Fahrenheit, for all you Americans out there. Um, so the point of all this is really that with some very basic climate physics, um, we can start to build up a picture of what planetary orbits are, are acceptable uh, for life. Having said that, these calculations don't tell us anything about whether these orbits are stable. So all we're doing here is putting uh, a planet in an orbit around the two stars. We're not looking at the gravitational effects of the two stars on the planet's orbit. So there's a, a question mark here as to whether planets might stay uh, in the same orbit uh, sooner or later afterwards. And it's fairly clear that if you make a very eccentric orbit, then you're going to have planets that spend a lot of time inside this instability region we saw earlier. So as you get above fairly high eccentricities, then you're in trouble for keeping the thing there, never mind keeping it habitable. So that's a quite simple picture of how we expect habitability to work in these Tatooine-type systems. What I really want to talk about, and kind of the meat of what I'd want to discuss today, is what happens when you go from these very simple climate models where we break up the planet into 1D chunks. We just look at the different latitudes from the North Pole to the equator down to the South Pole. What we now do is look at the entire surface of the planet. So we say, okay, well, let's look at uh, a simulation where we cut up the planet's surface into chunks in latitude and in longitude so we can see the entire surface. And then say, okay, let's put this planet back in orbit around Kepler-47c and let's look at what the flux of energy, radiative energy, is like on the surface. So the right-hand plot that we're looking at here is a point at the Greenwich meridian on the equator of a planet going around Kepler-47. But what you're seeing here is the flux the planet's receiving at that point on the surface from the primary body, uh, the secondary body, and the total flux. So Kepler-47 is a binary system with quite a high mass ratio. So the primary is about the same mass as the sun, and the secondary is about a third of the mass of the sun. So you can see that the flux it gets from the primary is completely dominating the flux that you're getting from the secondary. What you can see is a very, very fine high-frequency fluctuation in, in this curve, and that's just the day and night cycle. So the planet spins on a 24-hour period, just like the Earth, and you can see the flux goes away and comes back on the same kind of scales. As you make the frequency a bit lower and we look at the, the longer period things going on in there, then we can see there's actually motions due to the fact that the primary and the secondary are orbiting the center of mass, and so is the planet. So the distances between the primary and the planet and the distance between the secondary and the planet is also changing. So those funny green um, comb-shaped things at the top all that's happening there is the primary and the sec the primary is moving further and closer to the to the planet, and that's why you're seeing these changes. And the fact that the red is appearing and disappearing as well, you're seeing day and night cycles. You're seeing it's hard to see on this, but you're seeing very brief periods where the secondary is actually getting eclipsed by the primary. So the the, the secondary disappears from the night sky, uh, from the daytime sky as well. Um, and then you can just see in blue, just underneath the, the, the tooth combs, you can see the total flux um, when the secondaries add there as well. So you've got two objects in the sky. You've got a bright object, very much like the sun. They'll have a very similar kind of spectrum to the sun. And then you'll also have a secondary object that looks very red. It's going to be an M dwarf. It's going to be a very red looking spectrum. And it's also something quite bright. It's going to be significantly brighter than the moon, for example. And that's going to have 
consequences that we can discuss a bit later on. So if we scroll down to the last two sets of graphs, what we can see that it's not just about the flux that's um, that's interesting in these systems. These last two plots are integrations of how much time each part of the planet's surface spends in darkness. Now, if you consider in a single star system, if you take the axial tilt of the Earth and make it zero, so you get rid of the seasons, and then you say, right, how much time on average do I spend in darkness compared to how much time I spend in the daytime? then all over the planet's surface, half of the year will be spent in darkness and half of the year will be spent in light. Now, what's interesting here is that that changes a bit. Now, we've added a little bit of axial tilt here as well. Now, even with that, if you consider a single star system and you've got one planet going in orbit around it, then as we know that in this case here, we've tilted the axis to about 30 degrees, a bit like the Earth. So we know that above 30 degrees and below 30 degrees plus and minus these are the polar circles so we know that in those regions there are parts of the year where the sun doesn't rise and you spend a lot of time at night but you also get the balancing effect on the other side of the year where the sun never sets so in the main when you average it over the entire year you still spend about half your time in darkness and about half your time in light if you're in a system where you have two stars then the picture changes so what you're seeing here is that the time spent in darkness in days, so the planet's orbital period in this case is about a year, so about 360 days. So it's not quite uh, half the year spent in darkness. That makes sense because there's two stars in the sky, so you have more time to have light in the sky. We define darkness as basically being no stars in the sky. And you can see that in the equatorial regions, then it spends about 148 days in darkness. If you go beyond the polar circles, then you see some interesting effects. So you see that on average, there's about an extra day spent in darkness in those latitudes. If you look at about 120-ish degrees longitude, you'll see some slight fluctuations where you, it seems that the, the planets, actually, the, the locations in there are actually spending a day less in darkness than the rest of the system. So we have this bizarre distribution of time spent in darkness changing as well, or averaged over the course of an orbit. And what seems to be happening here, at least in the polar circles, is that when you're waiting for the sun to rise again after the end of winter, because you've got two stars, the centre of mass rises at the same time at the end of winter every year, but the stars are not at the centre of mass. They're somewhere else. They're slightly further apart from there. So it actually takes a little bit longer for the stars to actually rise again once winter is over. And there's also a bit of a delay when summer ends as well. You can get the opposite effect. Um, and it's a very complicated picture. And obviously, there's certain parts of the surface that depending on where you are in the orbit and at what point the stars are in the sky, when it's midday for one star compared to the other, then there are also points where you're spending less time in darkness as well. And that's a very sensitive function of where the planet is in its orbit and where the two stars are in their orbits as well. We thought this was a bit weird and we thought surely this will average out. Um, so we ran the whole thing again and we calculated what would happen if you took 100 years worth of orbits or 100 orbits. And then we looked at the time spent in darkness in years. And it is a different picture depending on which pole you're at. But this effect seems to be quite robust in that if you compare uh, at the equator where it spends something like 40.5 years in darkness in total, 
we're talking about years as being 365.24 days, so the Earth standard for a year. When you look at the North Pole, it seems to spend significantly more time. It spends something like an extra year and a bit in darkness compared to the South Pole. It's not quite so bad, but there does seem to be a very strong effect here. If we can now tie that all back to when we want to think about life and about what happens to you know organisms that are in these environments where the patterns of radiation are very different, then it gets quite interesting. So if we think about photosynthesis, for example, we know that on Earth, most photosynthesis occurs in uh, wavelengths near the peak of the sun spectrum, not quite at the peak, but in the, the vicinity. And it's a two photon process. We also know that there are routes to photosynthesis that don't need that kind of light. They can deal with redder light, so not so energetic. So it, it needs an extra photon to complete the process, but we know that it does happen. So you can get two photon at the, the, the bluer wavelengths and three photons at the redder wavelengths. Now, in the Kepler-47 system, we have two objects with very different spectra. We have one that has quite sun-like spectra and one that has a very red spectrum. So we can imagine that if you're in a part of the, the uh, planet's surface that sees a lot of the primary star, then you're going to be advantageous if you decide to use a lot of blue photosynthesis using the two-photon system. If you're in a part of the planet that doesn't see the primary that often or sees the secondary more than it sees the primary, then maybe it's in your interest to actually use the three-photon system rather than the two-photon system. Better still, if you're some kind of organism that has uh, some form of symbiosis with another, then perhaps you can share a two-photon system with your friend's three-photon system and you can have mutual benefits. So you can imagine a system where you've got to work together, if you like, or you've got to be very careful about which star you choose to extract your energy from. And that will depend on things like where the stars are in their orbits, where you are in the orbit relative to the stars, and where you are on the planet's surface as well, and what biomes happen to be on that part of the planet's surface as well. If you're an Arctic or an Antarctic creature and you live above the polar circle of your particular planet, then you're going to have to be aware of the fact that when winter comes, you're not entirely sure how, how long winter is going to last. The, the length of winter is going to be a very odd function of where the stars are in their orbits and where you are in, in the orbit as well. So one year winter might last this long, and then in another winter, it might last a little bit less, and another winter might last a little bit more. So if your biological rhythms or your general um, lifestyle is very much sensitive to when winter ends and when the ice starts to melt and when things start to flower again, you better know when winter ends. Otherwise, again, you're going to be in trouble. So you can imagine, again, that if you're an organism that needs to survive above these, these regions, your lifestyle and your cycles and your biological rhythms are going to be tuned to figure out exactly how long winter is over a, quite a long time scale. And you can imagine that, yes, the period of the length of winter will be a function that is periodic, but it'll be periodic in a very non-trivial way. And your biological rhythms are going to have to take account of that as well. So considering uh, how organisms on the Earth deal with biological rhythms, we deal with rhythms in the sun, hence jet lag. We deal with rhythms from uh, the moon, we, and other organisms are very tied to the moon. They're tied to the, the moon's um, light cycle. They're tied to the moon's tidal cycles. You can imagine that this is an object that's going to be a secondary star that's going to be several orders of magnitude brighter than the moon. So you're going to be much more keen to, 
to attune yourself and acclimatize to that cycle. And you're going to be using it potentially as a source of energy. So you're going to be very, very keen to make sure that you get that cycle in mind as well. So even though we have only a single star, we have a large number of cycles in our system that we rely on to survive. And adding a second star just makes it worse because you can imagine that this this planet may also have a moon as well. So you could have planetary cycles that are based on the diurnal period. You could have planetary cycles based on the moon's period and its phases and its tidal cycles. You could have phases based on the secondary's properties and on the primary's properties and on things like when winter ends and when summer ends and begins and the lengths of all these things therein. So it's going to be a very messy picture. Um, if you're one of these guys living on this planet in particular, because there are a lot of things uh, going on here. So I guess that's my kind of underlying point, really, is that we've we've just started detecting these systems. We've got a handful of them. I think it's about 20 currently. Really, the only reason we don't have any more systems is because up until the first detection in 2011, we didn't really know how to detect these things. And it took a lot of expertise from people who worked in binaries um, and who weren't really that interested in planets in the first place to come along and say, well, this part of the transit curve actually looks like an, like an eclipsing binary, but that seems to be overlaid with a planet as well. And maybe we can do a dynamical model to check. And hey, presto. Uh, and we had things like Kepler-16, which was the, the first Kepler detection of a circumbinary planetary system. One thing I did want to show, I only have one page here for the handouts, but Kepler-16 in particular is even more interesting. Unfortunately, it's not going to be a very good source for habitable planets because if you look at where the habitable zone is uh, in Kepler-16, it tends to be contained almost entirely inside the instability region, which is bad news. Um, you're not really going to get a stable orbit with a habitable planet in there as well. Um, but you can imagine that we could concoct a system that looks a bit like Kepler-16 in some respects. In particular, it could be like Kepler-16 in that the mass ratios of the two stars are quite similar. Um, Kepler-16 has a, a has two stars, a mass of 0.6 and a mass of about 0.3, I think maybe 0.2 even. So you can see that the masses are a lot more similar, uh, and that means that you get even stronger fluctuations because you've got two stars of roughly equal luminosity making your flux patterns on the surface. And you get similar darkness patterns as we saw for Kepler-47, but you can get very strong fluctuations indeed if the orbits start to become eccentric, the planet's orbits, that is. But it's very easy to show that Orbits around Kepler-16b that are even slightly eccentric do tend to get destroyed and removed out of the system. That is, if we're trying to make the orbits uh, in the Hadfield zone. I guess the takeaway point from all this is that we really have just started to put together what it is like to be in these systems. We know that the Hadfield zones are non-trivial in shape. We can make some kind of inroads by doing some quite simple simulations to say, right, these are the preferred orbits for habitability. One of the things I'm going to start doing now is combining these calculations for habitability that I showed you earlier with the 1D models with the gravitational physics now added. So we can start saying, right, we put a planet here, it stays here with this eccentricity, and it has this resulting climate as a result of that eccentricity. Um, and then we can say things a bit more, more quantifiable. We can also start making uh, plots like these 2D plots um, we're looking at here as well, and then say, okay, we have more gravitational physics in here as well, so we can see how the orbit itself evolves over a long time scale. And this could be another source of biological rhythms as well, because one thing we know about circumbinary planets is that if you try and do the end-body physics, the orbits process. So if you imagine the orbits are an ellipse and you can draw a line along the major axis of the ellipse, then that major axis actually moves around 
the system on a time scale that's actually quite short. It's a few tens of thousands of years. These are timescales quite similar to the timescales we see in the Earth's orbit, the Milankovitch cycles. So you could see a, a procession of an orbit on those kind of timescales. That's also going to affect, roughly speaking, where the stars are in their orbits in relation to where the planet is. So these darkness patterns will also fluctuate on a much longer timescale of tens of thousands of years, as well as the non-trivial stuff we've been talking about earlier. I guess I'll leave it there, but the, the underlying conclusion here is that it's a real mess, and you've got to really understand um, intuitively um, without, you know, if you're a complex organism, but you're not intelligent, then your biology has to understand this. Perhaps you don't um, as, as a species, but whatever it is that's, uh, that's driving your biology, it has to be aware or at least be adapting in some way to all these cycles, which fluctuate over huge periods of time. As the title suggests, it's more complicated uh, than you might think. And uh, I'll stop there and take some of your questions now. Uh, thanks very much, Duncan. That was quite interesting. So I have to ask the obligatory question first, since you did refer to them as Tatooine systems in your title. So what did George Lucas do right or wrong? And what would, what would you, if you were consulted for the new Star Wars movies, would you put in, you know, latitude-dependent photosynthesis systems? Or, you know, it, as you said, there's a lot of complexities, but what would you say could be better done in, in film to represent these systems. The classic picture of Luke Skywalker looking at the two suns setting, I guess that's not a bad picture. It's more likely that the two suns are not the same size. Perhaps there should be different colours as well. You know, that might be one thing to think about. Um, it's a fair point that Tatooine is a desert planet because, you know, these are, are very hot objects. And you can imagine that in the early evolution of a planetary system, they can become quite desiccated. I guess if I was going to do um, a more thorough job of making a Tatooine, then we would have to think about things like these kind of odd patterns. And, you know, I don't know if these can be worked in as a plot point or not, but <laughs> there, there might be uh, some interesting things to consider in terms of life forms having to deal with the fact that there are two stars in the system. And if we take Tatooine as red as having two quite, quite bright stars, um, and we assume that the orbit of, the, of Tatooine is stable, then the organisms in that system are going to be very, very attuned to both stars. And you might see much more examples of uh, symbiosis, or you might see examples of predators taking advantage of the fact that prey have to be attuned to these, to these cycles in order just to simply get food or to photosynthesize. And yeah, you, you might find some, some patterns of behavior that you just wouldn't see in our workaday single star system. Yeah, th there might be some interesting plot points to, to develop out of that. So, yeah, I guess that's the things I'd be interested in seeing. So we can open up to questions. Does anybody have any questions for Duncan? Is it possible to have a planet in a binary system on which there is no darkness at all? Do you know? It's like, is there such a possibility? Um, well, we, we ran a, a large number of simulations for Kepler-47 and for Kepler-16, and it's quite tricky to make a circumbinary system that has no darkness whatsoever. Uh, one thing that I have just started looking at, and I think this might be the way to do it, is to have uh, a planetary system where you have two stars. And instead of putting the planet in orbit around the two stars, is you stick the planet in one of the Lagrange points of the system. So Lagrange points are the parts of the system where uh, the gravity from the two stars and the rotation forces in the system all, all cancel out. So you can imagine that you can stick uh, a planet near one of these points where it effectively stays put relative to one of the stars. 
the solar system, we see that around Jupiter, that it has what we call Trojan bodies that sit in these points, and they stay in this fixed point relative to Jupiter uh, and the Sun. So you could imagine a situation where you have two stars orbiting that are fairly distant, say maybe at Jupiter's orbit, say 5 AU, um, and then you stick a planet in one of these Trojan points. And if it's close enough that the uh, the rota- say the rotation of the, the planet's uh, orbit is is much slower, then yes, maybe you could get circumstances where the fact you're in the Trojan point of one of the stars means that you don't get much darkness. In fact, maybe no darkness at all. And that's something to, to think about. But these are quite contrived looking systems. It's much more likely that you would find Earth mass planets in the Trojan point of maybe a giant planet or maybe a brown dwarf than a star. It's just a lot harder to get these things actually to stick in there and stay put. So in short, it'd be tricky. There may be some contrived circumstances where you can do it, but I don't know how often we'd see that uh, out there in the universe. So as a follow-up, could you imagine a star, a planet orbiting one star and that star orbiting another star, which would minimize darkness? That scenario looks more like a moon orbiting a giant planet or orbiting a brown dwarf. Now, that that's potentially possible. The problem, I guess you'd see there, is that if you're in orbit of a planet uh, around a star, then you're going to have frequent eclipses. And that's something that we've done a lot of research into when it's looking at things like exomoons. Um, one of the things I've been looking at very carefully is how the eclipses affect the Hubble zone for an exomoon. Um, and what you're talking about there is the same scenario, just kind of scaled up, if you like. So the planet would undergo a large number of eclipses, the primary by the secondary. And if you're l- unlucky to be on the far side of the planet during an eclipse, then you will get darkness. Um, again, these circumstances would probably mean that you get even less darkness. Um, but you, it's quite hard to get to zero darkness. You know, the universe happens to be quite a dark place um, <laughs> as, a, as a, a rule. So it's quite hard to find enough light sources to keep a planet constantly illuminated. I imagine that to really get you down to zero darkness, you'd have to start building up a very hierarchical system where you have stars orbiting stars orbiting stars. And then maybe you can get into that point where the darkness that you experience on one planet is a very rare occurrence. Um, and again, if that's true, then you, if you're an organism that has to get used to the idea of being in the dark um, every so often, say once every you know 10 years for a couple of days, then you better get used to that uh, and you better find coping mechanisms for it. So again, probably contrived circumstances, but you know, uh, the universe is a weird place. We can't rule this kind of stuff out until we see it or we don't see it. So if Tatooine was a planet rich in veg- vegetation, would that mean that we would have latitude-dependent plant colors? Potentially. I think you might find that plants of different pigmentations might do slightly better, and it might be that plants have several different pigmentations on different leaves, or that they have a symbiotic relationship with another plant that has a different pigmentation. So you could find that there is some dependence on where you are in terms of latitude and, and how often you see the stars. I imagine it would be fairly weak. But having said that, we we do have some plans to try and see what the effect of different light sources has on uh, on on the um, a microbiome. Um, we're we're looking to set up a lab experiment hopefully quite soon that will take the results from this code and convert that into a control system for two lamps that have two different spectra, uh, and then see what happens if we take a microbiome sample with some bacteria that are sensitive to. Um, the two-photon uh, process, and some that are sensitive to the three-photon process, and see what happens. 
And so I'm looking forward to that. I think it's one of the first examples of a lab experiment for a circuit binary system. So I'm hoping that we'll get a master student to work on that over the next year and we'll have some promising results. I think it might even be the first exoplanet lab experiment. Don't quote me on that, but I think it might be. No, I have a question about the climate side of this. So I'm assuming in your, your 1D climate models that the atmospheres are very simplistic, right? It's, it's, we're probably not looking at different atmospheric compositions. It makes me wonder, could there be these long-term climate cycles that sort of adapt to the difference in you know the, the flux cycles that you're getting from the stars? You know, we have the carbon silicate cycle on Earth, but I mean, maybe you'd have a cycle of, of haze well, so actually, I'll, I'll step back. What got me thinking about this was on Titan, you have seasonal rains, potentially, because methane is a greenhouse gas. So when it rains out, the planet gets a lot colder, and it takes a long time for evaporation to happen and build up methane again. So on Earth, we have rain, you know, a lot, you know, many times a week in some places. But on Titan, you may have seasonal torrents. So I wonder if that type of feedback could occur on these planets where you have, you'd still have the darkness issue, but you might have a, a long-term thermostat that helps regulate and protect the climate, protect the habitable conditions on the planet. And you, know, you might have wide fluctuations in atmospheric composition over these long periods of time. So just a thought, maybe comment on that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting thought. I think it's quite clear that if we put this planet on the edge of the habitable zone, then yeah, we'll, we'll see some quite strong fluctuations in the carbon silicate cycle. And again, that's another thing that I'm interested in looking at is whether we can see forcings from the fact you've got this binary, uh, binary period going on as well. I think as well, if you're near the edge of the handful zone and you have these periods of darkness, then depending on the atmospheric composition, you might get rains in uh, the polar regions that have a, a knock-on effect on say atmospheric circulation or cloud formation or hazes, all these factors, none of these are in the model. You know, um, it's very simple. Um, so yeah, there's there's a very strong possibility that if you have these cycles, you may have cycles of you know particular weather formations. Goodness knows what it would do to an El Nino, El La Nina kind of situation. Hadley circulation, dust, hazes, clouds. You know, the list is endless. I think given how how much uncertainty there is currently with quite advanced 3D climate models of the Earth and discussions about the different roles that different physical processes have to play. Yeah, I mean, all, all of this is up for grabs if you add a second star into the system. And to really find out the answer, you probably have to start taking these really advanced models and um, hard code in a second star and see what happens. And the results could be really, really interesting. I think it's absolutely fascinating that, I mean, if you look at hominid, the out of Africa hominid movement where people were early hominids on Earth were coming out of East Africa through the Horn of Africa to the rest of the world was dominated by or, or, or determined by survival during drought and flood cycles that were here were really just governed by the climate due to one sun. But just thinking about the possibilities of how insane it would be to have to deal with the radiation and, and the climate variances from two suns even on, I mean, on a microbial scale of that, would be, it's just amazing to think of. Can you comment on that a little bit? I mean, yeah, um, that, that's, a, that's a lovely question. It lets me talk about SETI, which is one of my favorite topics. So yeah, you're, you're in a really interesting regime there where you have to consider whether um, an intelligent species could live on one of these planets and the different challenges you'd have to face. And you, you make a very good point about 
how climate change tends to have a very strong effect on not just how hominids uh, left East Africa, but also how human civilization has developed as a whole. I mean, you can look at um, uh, a lot of the things that happened during the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. You can attach it back to things like climate change. And to stick my flag back in the UK for a second, the, the, the very fact that the Romans wanted to come to Britannia and try and conquer it is an indication of how fertile it was because of climate change in a way that hadn't been in the 500 years before they had a shot. So, you know, you can see that there's there's definite um, motivations for going somewhere because climate change makes the place nicer and motivations for leaving because climate change is making the place uninhabitable. And again, you know, the, the Earth's climate is a very complex system. Yeah, you could get even more complex if you added the second uh, forcing term from a another star. You know, again, very complicated. And, you know, you've got the another Milankovitch cycle because you've got this orbital precession that you wouldn't have had before. So again, if you've got a circumbinary system with multiple planets in it, then you've got to think about not just the two stars, but about the neighboring planets and the whole stability of the system and all the considerations you have to, to make when you consider things like the rare earth hypothesis and all the factors that may have gone into making the earth suitable for complex and intelligent life. Yeah, yeah, it just gets even worse, doesn't it? <laughs> That actually reminds me, the, the question of intelligent life reminds me of a conversation I had with a mathematician retired from the University of Arizona. He suggested that maybe, how do we learn to count? Maybe it's because the sun set, you know, on a regular basis once every day and we figured out, oh, how many sunsets does it take to get somewhere? can imagine on one of these Tatooine planets that would get quite complicated and you might learn to count in a very different way if, in fact, there's anything to that hypothesis. <laughs> Well, well, yes. I, I imagine that however you learn to count, once you start counting, um, your number system might have very different different properties. I mean, obviously, there's there's a strong indication for a base 10 system because we have 10 fingers. But you, you may want a base 10 system, say you're a human or a hominid uh, type on one of these objects. There may be a strong indication for having a base 10 system and a base 2 system being part of daily life rather than just being um, something that computer programmers have to deal with. So you can imagine, yeah, I mean, if, if there's another object in the sky, then it will affect things like how we come up with um, complex concepts and not just science and mathematics, but also just generally culturally speaking, religious objects. You know, we a lot of religions take the sun and the moon as the principal characters uh, in, in the tableau. If you've got a third character in there, then, you know, what stories do you then concoct about uh, about the objects in the sky? And does that improve your understanding of the universe or make it less uh, informative so again you know much deeper questions can be made and wild crazy speculation can be had over uh, over a good beer uh, at the end of the day so yeah i mean it's, there's there's lots to think about here plenty of territory both scientifically and in science fiction i think to explore these ideas i think that's a great note to end on so duncan thanks so much for joining us again this was a fascinating conversation i think everybody enjoyed it a lot uh listeners thanks for tuning in please check us out online at bmsis.org slash podcast and we will see you next month science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence there's real poetry in the real world science is the poetry of reality we can do science and with it we can improve our lives.